Hey, everybody, and welcome back to The One Thing Podcast. I'm Chris Dixon. With the rapidly increasing speed of technology and innovation, Mauro Porcini believes that it will be the human-centric, value-driven organizations that will stand out and keep up with the ever-changing marketplace. Today, Mauro and I talked about integrating the concepts of design into innovation and what it looks like to integrate technology into the landscape of the future. But mostly we discussed the importance of people and understanding people and recognizing how we can add value back to people. Also, Mauro believes you can leverage what he's learned about people and his education and design and his experience as a senior leader in multiple organizations across many different areas of business and life. Here at The One Thing, we believe it all starts with purpose. Having a purpose allows you to prioritize the things that matter most in your life so you can be productive towards the goals that you've set for yourself. If you like what you hear on this podcast and you're interested in how you can take the principles of The One Thing to your life, the tools, the concepts, check out theonething.com. We're running a monthly workshop we call The One Thing Foundations. And here you can learn in this workshop how to bring the concepts we discuss in this podcast and from the One Thing book to your everyday life. So check out theonething.com for more information about the One Thing Foundation's workshop and enter promo code podcast for $100 off at checkout. Now, please enjoy this conversation with Mauro Porcini. Mauro, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. Everybody, we have Mauro Porcini on with us today. And Mauro is PepsiCo's first ever chief design officer, where he is tasked with infusing design thinking into PepsiCo's culture. Mauro has his new book, The Human Side of Innovation, The Power of People and Love with People. Mauro, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Tell us a little bit more about your background and what got you thinking about innovation and design. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure. And well, a little bit about myself. As you can hear from my accent that I'm not hiding at all, I'm Italian. Uh, I am almost 48 years old and I'm now also an American citizen, something I, I don't talk too much about, but I'm very proud of, you know, living between the two uh, regions of the world that gave me so much in all these years. My wonderful, beautiful Italy that inspired me when I was growing up. Uh, before I even decided to be a designer, I was surrounded by beauty, design, art, uh, the beauty of the landscape, you know, the culture of food. There were many elements that then later on in my life have been very useful in my professional journey and, by the way, also in my personal journey. And then America, the land of opportunity, the United States that gave me the possibility to work in amazing companies like PepsiCo now, 3M before, reaching billions of people all around the world uh, with my ideas, with my projects, meeting people that come from all around the world. You know, in Italy, I grew up in a town in the north of the country called Barese, one hour driving from Milan, where I was not really exposed to people that were not from Italy, you know? And so there was this homogeneity uh, of culture. We're all the same. We're all at the same religion, the same color of skin, the same traditions and and uh, I I started to travel uh, later on in life I, I I come from a middle class family not very wealthy at all actually and we, I grew up um, sleeping with my parents and my brother in one bedroom uh, and my parents never traveled never took a plane they never left Italy uh, and so I I found myself, um, in the time of university for the first time, leaving the country for a while to go study abroad, to go study in Dublin, to learn English. I studied French at school. I didn't speak a word of English. I go to, to Dublin uh, when I'm, I was 23 uh, to study design in a language I didn't know. And that, that was my first experience with a world that was much bigger and broader than Italy and realizing uh, the beauty and the strengths of my culture, but also the weaknesses and gaps, appreciating the beauty and the strengths of, in the case, the Irish culture, understanding also their gaps and understanding it was an amazing opportunity to insert myself exactly in the middle between different cultures 
bringing my strengths, filling my gaps, and understanding how to build value for another culture by bringing those strengths, my 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 diversity, my different kind of thinking, respecting the other culture, blending them together. So I started to ramble around, but but this is a little bit the story of my life. Is a little bit of what I write also in the book. I always live in suspension, as I say in the book, between cultures, between regions. I'm a designer working in the world of business. I'm not a marketer, but I'm not even a pure designer. So I'm there in the middle. I am American and Italian. Uh, I am so many different things, and I love to be in the middle of it. It's a discomfort area where I find my comfort. That's so cool. And and you can tell you're, you're passionate about it. And I was uh, I was picking your brain before the podcast that I, I told you that I got married uh, just uh, two Saturdays ago and was asking you for some advice on a honeymoon in Italy and got a full download and a brief on the best travel plans and places I should go. And so you can tell that you're you're very passionate about inspiring and and where you're from and cultures. And I appreciate that. Look, I, I this is interesting. You're so right. I when I love something. Uh, I I become a, a storyteller of that experience, of that thing that I love, whatever it is, because I want as many people as possible to experience it. That there are sometimes people that have a different approach. Well, I experience it and it's my experience, and I don't want others to experience it because it's unique and it's me. And I I'm the opposite. I I want everybody to experience what I'm experiencing if if that experience gave me some form of value. He left something inside my heart and my mind. And, and yes, is and that Italy is for sure something that I always talk about. Uh, but the same when I'm in Italy talking about the amazing opportunities that the United States give to people. Often, you know, we talk about the negatives. We are bombarded by negativity in social media, for instance, in so many different ways. And we forget to celebrate all the positives that these countries, these regions, these societies uh, have. I'm a big ambassador of design because I think that design is one of the most beautiful jobs of the world. Uh, I, I think, you know, to do design is so fun. Many of us will design even for free. I mean, and the fact that somebody decides to pay you to be a designer, it's magic. It's amazing. And I talk about this also because I know that many kids, many people that need to decide what to study, what school to choose, are not really aware of what design is. And the fact that you can have a career path on this uh, profession, and actually you can earn money, you can have a wonderful life, and you can do something that is pure fun, and they're paying you to do that. I didn't know either. I talk about this in the book. I had no clue what design was. I wanted to be an artist or a writer. And then I I picked design just because it was a new university in the moment. It was called Disegno Industriale, industrial design. And I found in those two words, a balanced mix between design that was reminding me the world of art and creativity that I love so much. And then industrial, there was the connection to the business world, to the commerce and for me, it was important because, again, I wanted to be an author or an artist, but my family didn't have the means to support me after university. I needed to find a job right away and a job that would pay my rent. And so it was difficult back then to make money writing books or being an artist in Italy. It was not that easy. And without any kind of support, I needed to pick something in a very pragmatic way they will give me that income. And so I jumped in, into this thing called design with having no clue what design was. And after a few months, I realized it was the most amazing job I could imagine for myself. Uh, and there is another lesson there, again, that I, that I talk about in the book. Often we are in front of decisions that are not easy and we don't know what to do. And often we go for the safe route, what we perceive as the safe route. Sometimes I think in life, instead, we need to follow our instinct, our intuition, and jump. And well, if it goes wrong, even in the case, we learn something and we get better and, and, and we can go on with the strength of the learning. But other times it will go well. And, 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 and when it goes well, 
these things can really change your life. That decision for sure changed my life for me, the one of studying design, as well as the decision at 23, there is an entire chapter in the book where I talk about that decision of going to study English uh, or better, better say, going to study design in a language that I didn't know because a mentor of mine, the former chief design officer of Philips, highly and warmly recommended to me to study English if I ever wanted to work in a big corporation. Now, today is pretty obvious. But in the late 90s, it was not that obvious. And, and so I needed, especially for a family like mine, coming from a little town, you know, in the north of Italy, you didn't need English to have a decent job, you know, in, in that time. And so to have an external entity, an external person in this case, mentoring me somehow and inspiring me to do something that I was not planning to do, there was another leap of faith, another jump in the void, but another thing that really changed my life. There are many things that I often talk about, those sliding doors that changed my life for the better. And then there are tons of other choices that I took that were not necessary, that sometimes were wrong, that you know I made all my mistakes, but even those made me grow, made me learn something and make me become a better person today. Mm, well said. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch, snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. You mentioned something earlier, and I think it's it's really cool to give scope to the impact of your work, but you said that you touch billions of people with your influence. And you said, you know, growing up when you had to take this pragmatic um, approach towards income, you, your initial interests were to become an artist. And what was the second one? And, uh, and a author, I wanted to do writing. An author, that's right. I, I ended so, up writing books. <laughs> uh, yeah. And in design of sorts, you you get to, I would imagine, scratch the artistic itch on a regular basis, right? And so now you have a, an audience of potentially billions of people. So how does that feel? Look, I, I realized later on in life that what I wanted to do as a child was not really just being a writer or just being an artist. What I wanted to do was somehow to touch the life of people with something I was creating. And mm. that in those specific two dimensions, they were familiar to me because my father was an architect, but he's been painting all his life. So I was exposed to him painting, painting, painting. My grandfather, the same. And my mother loved, she was working in finance, but she left her job when she was 38 to be close to the family and the kids. But I will see her writing every single day of her life, writing poems, writing thoughts. And she was in love with literature and philosophy. So those two dimensions were close to me because I had in my parents two people that were practicing them. But again, I realized later on that what I wanted to do was to touch people with my creations and somehow leave a legacy behind. You know, for me, when as a, as a child, my myths were not even the celebrities that you see in television, but it was more this amazing author from the past, these poets, these philosophers, these amazing artists, Michelangelo, Leonardo, uh, Giacomo Leopardi in Italy, Manzoni, you know, literature and art. And, and so later on, when I became a designer, first of all, 
I started to do the same thing that I would have done as an artist or a writer through the products first and then the brands I was creating. Creating something that had value to the life of people and somehow be the form of legacy for me. Uh, but it's a very altruistic kind of legacy, a generous kind of legacy. A legacy uh, uh, founded on the idea that, by the way, my parents gave me, once again, it's about them, gave me of creating value for people and for the society. Thinking that if you do that, then you create value for yourself. Or later on, I understood you create value for your company, for your brands as well. And I started to storytell the hell out of it. Going to conferences early on to speak about what I was doing. Uh, even when nobody knew me or what I was doing, you know, I would beg people in universities to give me space to give a speech about what I was doing to students. You know, step by step, I started to grow and I get to uh, bigger stages. But it was conferences, it was articles and interviews, and and then writing writing articles myself or papers, and then later on it became a book and. And then, and then another book. And, and so all of this is all connected to the same thing. It's all about creating something that reaches people and somehow add some form of value to their life. It could be a product. So it's a value in what you do and how you use the product every day. But it could be a story, it could be a service. It could be anything that somehow inspire you in some form of way. So as you say, you know, in, what you were asking me just a minute ago, reaching billions of people every day is amazing. And by the way, reaching billions of people with the resources that PepsiCo gives me is an amazing opportunity. And, and this is what I tell to the design community, you know, today, um, to the design community out there. If you see opportunities in uh, society in general, in uh, a specific industries like the food and beverage one where we play with PepsiCo, join these companies. Opportunities like sustainability, as an example, or uh, all the world of personalization enabled by technologies or uh, health and wellness. Join these companies and leverage the reach and the resources that they have to steer their direction in the right way to really add value to society. This is something that I always love of these big corporations. You know, they, they can be complex to work in. They're, you know, huge and there is a lot of people in it and processes. It's not easy to navigate them. But when you figure out, figure out how to do it, the impact you can have with your ideas at this scale is big, is big. Yeah, and that's that. What you just mentioned is is what really uh, drew me to or attracted me to want to speak to you. Is I can, I can tell that you you are focused on taking that angle and and being focused on the people and adding value, as you said, to society. Taking what can be perceived um, in reality or just by perception at times with these large organizations that can have negative impacts, and saying how can you leverage these resources to actually provide benefit. And I and I love that. And I, I think that starts to show up in, in your book, which is the human side of innovation um, around this central theme, uh, or at least a, a big component of the book, which is human-centered design. And I wanted to ask you, when you, when you think about human-centered human -centered design, like how does that differ from other design approaches? And you know, what are some of those key principles behind human-centered design? Look, the reason why I called that kind of design human-centered is just to make very clear the fact that design should be always human-centered. You know, that uh, I, uh, real design, the design that they teach us at school is human-centered by definition. To, to, to call it human-centered design is actually pleonastic. It's not necessary. It's redundant. But I made it very explicit because I wanted to land the point. We need that kind of design. You know, we go to school once again and we learn that kind of approach to design and innovation. And then often we enter these companies and they these companies start to use designers in a very narrow way. They ask designers to prettify packaging, to beautify products, not understanding what is the education and the culture and the approach 
typical of this community. What do we study at school? And, and I often talk about this because I think it really clarifies what designers are about. We study uh, all, uh, in three different dimensions. We study all the world of people and human beings. As an example, at Polytechnic of Milan, where I study in Italy, we will study anthropology, ethnography, semiotic, human science. So you study to understand people, to use your empathy and your intellect to generate insights from observing, listening to people, and finally understanding their needs and their wants. Then you study all the world of business, branding, macroeconomic, marketing. Uh, and when I say study, by the way, is with books, real books, with teachers coming often from the universities, you know, of business or, you know, human science and everything. And you do exams on these things. So it's not light. This is five years of real studying. And then there is a third dimension that is the one of technology. You start with the basics of mathematics and physics and then material science, digital technologies, and so on and so forth. And then every year you do projects, two, three projects per year, usually with companies. So you start to interact with the real world. Often you have a mix of startups and big corporations. And you do projects where essentially you need to combine the three dimensions, the three lenses with a deep focus on people, on human beings, human centricity. This is the priority number one. You need, you focus on what these people need and want, and then you generate a solution for those needs and those wants. It could be a product, a brand, a service of any, an experience, any kind of solution. But what the way you do it is by connecting the three dimensions that are, by the way, are nothing else than the world of people, business, and technology. Desirability, uh, viability and feasibility. When I left university and I started to work in corporations, I realized that what we designers call design, these companies call innovation. There is no difference. The problem is that, and, and by the way, our design approach to innovation is a human-centered one. It put people before anything else. A business approach to innovation is the one that put profits and financial revenue before mm. anything else. That's the goal. And then you, you see people as a lever, creating a product that is meaningful to them is a lever. But you may have other levers. It may be distribution, it may be pricing, it may be multiple levers that still give you the result, the financial goals that you are going after. Designers instead put the creation of something amazing for people as the primary goal, and they see the business as a result of that, a necessary result. If you didn't see that as a result, you will be an artist. Designers know that you need to create something that is industrialized, rich people, and make money for the company. But they're driven by creating something that is amazing, meaningful, relevant for people. And we live in a world, the world of today, where this approach is more relevant than ever. Because in the past, you may have a business-driven approach to innovation where you put the business goals before anything else and win eventually with a mediocre product. Eventually, you can win with that if you have the right barriers to entry made of scale, for instance, of production, distribution, communication. Uh, if you use in a smart way other levers, pricing, uh, distribution, once again, you can still win with a product that is not extraordinary. Or you could, you could still win with a product that was not extraordinary. Today, that's not possible anymore. Or it's becoming less and less possible in many industries. Because if you don't create something that is extraordinary for people, at 360 degrees, product, branding, service, experience, everything, if you don't do that, well, today you may have a startup do it in your behalf. And this is true also in, in, in industries that are huge barriers to entry. Think about the automotive industry where you see every other month new startups coming in and starting to challenge eventually the big companies. So even in, dif in, in, in our industry, in food and beverage instead, it's been very easy for years to enter and compete with the big products and brands. So once again, if you don't have that kind of human-centered approach that really creates something extraordinary for people, you're going to have problems in, uh, in, your, uh, in, uh, in your business. Sooner or later, you will.
Yeah, no doubt about it. And it, there's there's no there's definitely a a core principle or a core ideology mindset to be people first that you draw from in the design world that you come from that that you've leveraged into the world of innovation and inside of business and I'm sure you do too but I see that there that same core principle should be applicable to other business verticals too right if you think about sales or leadership or customer service and these these kind of default uh, mindsets inside of businesses, legacy businesses to be profit first versus people first. And I think there's just a common application that you can pull from here that you found success with in, in design and innovation. Yeah, no, thanks for clarifying this. I, I realized that I didn't make it very clear. Human centricity is an approach that applies to every uh, profession, every function is necessary for everybody. Um, I, I mentioned design because it's a community uh, where that kind of approach is part of the culture, is what you study at school. But my point earlier was that if marketing, finance, strategy, R&D, IT, HR don't switch and change towards that kind of human-centered approach, uh, the companies that where they, that, where they belong will have problems. Uh, human centricity needs to be a culture that is transversal to every function. Uh, and, and eventually, if you are in the journey of changing the culture, you can use designers as ambassadors of that culture because they will have that kind of culture. Now, not all designers do that for the reasons I explained earlier. Some of them were trained in that way, but then they started to work maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago in companies that leveraged just a component of the culture. And so they lost somehow their way. And now they don't have that approach anymore. But in general, there is a decent probability of finding in this community what I call the ambassadors of the human being the ambassadors of this human-centricity kind of approach. But again, I met many people with a human-centered kind of approach in many other professional communities. Uh, what companies need to understand if you want to change the approach is that uh, this is about culture. This is not about mm. processes, tools. And I'm saying this because working for many years in big corporations, I know that often even opportunities like human centricity, there's their approach from a process standpoint, a tool standpoint. Well, you know, we want to be human-centered. Let's have our people doing one consumer focus group per month. Even if you work in IT, you're going to do that. So you're closer to consumer. And that's just an example. This is not what we're talking about when we talk about human centricity. Human centricity is having employees, no matter your background and profession, deeply caring about the people you serve through your company, through your products and brands. Uh, thinking, well, society is going in this direction and there are these needs and opportunities in this society or in my industry, to be more specific. And I think my company should do this for them. Then you go back to the company and you're like, okay, this is the goal. This is where the company is today, the industry is today. Now I'm going to proactively spend my next days, months, and years pushing this idea and helping the company going in that direction. This is what human centricity is about. And, and figuring out how to add value for society while you make money for the company because if you don't generate value for this profit company, profit-driven companies, you're not going to last. So this is the challenge of a human-centered approach. How to envision what you need to do. So forecasting, understanding where the future is going. How to understand what your company should do to get there. And then how to go back to today and understand how the vision is going to inform the strategy of today that needed to deliver financial results in the short term, quarter by quarter, and in the future too. And the, if you have the right approach, if you are really driven by creating value for society, the first thing you understand 
is that if you really create value for them, you're going to create financial value for your company, especially in a world where you cannot protect anything that is not meaningful, relevant for people through your barriers to entry. Progressively, they will be lower and lower and lower because of globalization, new technologies, and digital uh, channels for selling products and communicating products. So because of all of this, you need to invest in creating extraordinary solutions for people's needs and wants. You need to have this kind of culture, but you need to understand how to translate the ideal situation into something that makes sense for today. As an example, and I close, if I understand that the company PepsiCo should be a certain kind of company in 20 years, I build first a vision of what the company should be in 20 years, what kind of product portfolio, branding, and how that company will play in a society where technology will be completely different than today and the behavior of people will be different. You know, we can forecast some of it and there are other things that obviously we cannot forecast. But once you understand more or less where you want to be in 20 years, you go back to today, you do multiple things. That strategy should inform your acquisition strategy. If you're a big company, you can afford to acquire other companies. Your venture strategy, so partnering with other eventually company, uh, other companies, eventually startups or providers of technologies or something they feel a gap that you may have as a company that can accelerate your journey towards the future. And then you also do projects in hours. Some of them should be what we call quick cycle. You move fast, you experiment. If it goes wrong, fine, you move on, but you learn out of that. Some of them will go well and you scale them up. And then others may require more time, more investments. Those are the ones where you should really have some major competitive advantage. They usually is technology driven. So acquisition, partnership and new ventures, quick cycle innovation and breakthrough innovation are four pillars of what you should do once you have the vision. But first you need to have the vision. Now, all of this is complicated. Why? Because all these companies usually reward people in the short term, in one year cycle. So if you do things that will deliver results in the future, it's difficult for your company to measure your performance. And this is where you need real leaders, real human-centered people, real people in love with people, people that are driven by that passion, by the idea of doing the right thing, no matter if there are not very metrics that are very easy to use to reward you in the short term. So your reward should come from the amazing projects that you do and from the belief that if you push the right thing, you start to generate real value, the world will recognize this and we recognize your company, your brand, but ultimately we recognize also you. Mm. There's so much uh, <laughs> good stuff to unpack there. And and you, you ended up where I was going, ultimately going to ask you, um, but there's something, there's like a central theme there that you're, you're talking about, like casting a vision for the future, working backwards from that vision to inform the strategies that you should do today, but being really clear as much as you can be uh, in the present about where you want to go 20 years into the future as a business. And that's very in line with the process we call at the one thing called goal setting to the now. And I, I love that you brought that up. And you talked about this cultural journey or, or transition that may need to take place inside of either maybe you're a small business or um, you're trying to influence a large industry like yours. That's a, a long journey to go on. And I was going to ask you, you know, how do you balance going through some of that transition, right? Because there's there's going to be, if you are a very purely profit-driven, kind of the antithesis to uh, what you're you're describing about being hum human-centric, as you make that transition, it's going to be difficult to overcome some of those hurdles of, hey, listen, at the end of the day, it's it's the bottom line. You know, it's it's what gets through the PL to the bottom. And they were going to make decisions based on that. And what you landed on, which I thought was awesome, is it's it's having real leaders. Right? It's having people that recognize that this is a long-term journey and that you have to make some difficult decisions, perhaps in the short term, to make that transition. But I just really wanted to call that out because I thought it, it was really wonderful that you said it that and way. Just, you know, for people listening to us and trying to figure out how to make it happen in their companies, there was a 
strategy that I use over the years has been very powerful, at least for me. On one side was pushing all of this, what we've been discussing for the past few minutes. But on the other side, it was very important to also deliver in the short term. So if the company hire you and they expect something from you in design, in marketing, in IT, unless what they're asking you to do, you th- unless you think that is wrong, that the company shouldn't do that. But if they're asking you something that is short term, that is okay, the company's been doing for years and it's fine if they keep doing, and this is what they expect from you, this is why they hire you, give them that. Mm. In time, carve out time to push the vision. So the company was asking me to do packaging, to do product design, to design experiences in a certain way. And I was doing that. That was essential because you make the company happy. They're like, okay, I hire this person is delivering. And then you start to push the breakthrough ideas. And you start to build more and more credibility with the short-term projects, the more credibility, the more resources, the more margin to do different things, to, to do um, to, to, to drive ideas that are more breakthrough. So the fine balance between delivering the short term, do what the company is asking, unless again, you think is wrong. And in the meantime, push for the future is key. If you just go in and you push the future, it's very complicated because before you generate value in market, it's going to take a lot, a lot of time. But the problem is that you, you want to have enough credibility within the company, enough connections, enough resources to make it happen. Even when the CEO is your sponsor, even when you're brought in to disrupt. I saw many situations like this, not just in design, mostly actually in other, bus- in other business units or in other uh, professional communities of people brought in by top management to disrupt the culture and lasting one or two or three years, as long as the sponsor was there. When the sponsor is gone, they're gone because you can't arrive in these organizations and just disrupt like a tank. You need to disrupt, but not by destroying, but by building together and delivering in the short term is part of building connection, building credibility, building cross-functional work. And, and this is essential. And this is, again, one of the mistakes that I saw happening so many times. Top management thinking, well, I can, I need to disrupt this profession, this community, this industry, this product, this brand, and bring in people telling them, don't worry, I'm protecting you. And these people are not understanding that you need to disrupt once again without destroying, but by building together. Mm, well said. It's like, uh, I don't know, this came to mind like that movie Inception with Leonardo DiCaprio, where you have to plant that seed very deeply and let it grow over time. But to your point, not not uh, like a tank or being so disruptive that you're not considerate of what value you need to add today and what you are hired to do. Yeah. So you talked about technology as uh, this relationship with technology today and in the future. I wanted to, to ask you about that and how you see technology playing a role in design and innovation uh, on into the future. And some of these things like, like AI, for example, that's uh, becoming, becoming more and more of a player in this field. I think technology today, as it's been, by the way, for the Forever. longest time, is an amazing <laughs> uh, opportunity. Usually, if you look at the history of humanity, technology has been scaring um, society, population at the beginning. You always, you know, you, the first thing you're afraid of is that you're going to lose your job because technology is arriving and it's going to do what you used to do. This is true starting with the Industrial Revolution. I guess it was true even with the Agricultural Revolution um, thousands of years ago. So the first thing to understand is that technology is an amplifier that needs to be embraced by us as professionals. As an example, there is a lot of debate right now about the role of AI uh, and the fear that AI is going to replace the work of designers, marketers, and tons of other people in other kinds of fields. The reality is that uh, if we replace some of the things we do, 
but you will still need a human being. You will just need to upskill ourselves, change the way we do. And by the way, this is the history of war in the modern times. Uh, we should actually change education. We shouldn't go to schools anymore to just study skills. We should go to schools to understand how to learn and how to adapt and how to flex. By the time you're out of a university today, the skills you may have learned are already obsolete or they're going to be in two, three years. But there are a series of other things that education can give you that are going to be essential in your journey. So once again, I'm starting with the people leveraging the technology because often they are the biggest roadblock. They, they are refusing to adapt, to flex, to use them. They're actually afraid of them in some situations. Now, once you understand that you need to embrace them, technology can do amazing things for the people you serve, especially when the technology is not used yet in your category. If you think about food and beverage, I mean, you think of food and beverage, what is the use of technology you can have in the products? Maybe in communication, in service, in distribution, but in the product, at the end of the day, I need to eat, I need to drink. What is the role of technology? Well, a couple of projects that, that we launched that have been very successful for us. Um, one is called Gatorade GX. And I talk about this also in the book. You have this patch that you put in your on your skin that monitor your sweating, composition and frequency of sweating, how much sweat you lose and how much water and electrolytes and other things you lose and gives the information to an app that give you a direction of what kind of concentrate of Gatorade you should use on the base of your body and your physiology and your performance. And then you have a smart bottle that you fill with tap water, totally sustainable, uh, with a microchip that monitor how much you are drinking of that specific composition of Gatorade and send information to the app again. So essentially you have wearable technologies that help you understanding what you need on the base of your body and your performance and monitor what you're getting so they can tell you, well, that's enough or you know, give you a series of other informations that, by the way, transcend the Gatorade drink eventually. Uh, or SolarStream Professional, this machine uh, with a digital screen, you arrive in front of the machine with your reusable bottle, the screen recognizes your bottle through a QR code or you can use an app if you prefer and knows your profile. And then you can start from there and customize your drink, starting from water, adding carbonation, deciding the temperature, adding flavor, deciding the intensity of the flavors, but mostly adding functional ingredients, uh, magnesium, vitamin B, and a variety of other functional ingredients. And, and so is this mix of emotion and functionality of giving something you love, but also something that you need. And these two projects are just two projects that are in market, but they're connected to the vision of the future that I was mentioning earlier, in a future, you know, that could be in five years or in 10 years, but it's going to arrive. We wake up in the morning, we'll have a patch on our skin or maybe an aura ring or maybe an Apple watch or something else that will tell us, well, Maura, I know you didn't sleep very well last night. He'll be like, wait a second, what do you mean? I, I thought I slept <laughs> so well, but the, your patch, your ring will know more than you. And then that intelligence will know also your health history will know your agenda of the day. And, and, and so the intelligence of the house, the Google or Alexa, Google Home or Alexa or whatever is going to be in the future will tell you, well, I'm going to create a drink for you, the, the drink you love. I know that you love, I don't know, hot mango drink in the morning, but with the right functional ingredients to help you through this specific day. Or I'm going to 3D print a snack for you uh, it could be a, the equivalent of a potato chip or of a cookie with all the functional ingredients you need. Then at lunchtime, I'm still going to have a salad or a good pasta with clams or whatever I want. You know, the ritual of food is too important. You know, as an Italian, it's part of our culture, but <laughs> it is good for everybody, right? Ritual of food, you want to preserve that. But technology will help us rebalancing any gap and understanding better how to read our body, especially when eventually we exceed a little bit with some of the things we love. So this is an example of the role of technology. And to summarize, 
professionals of the world embrace technology is not a threat, is an amplifier of opportunities. And especially in industries where it's not present, figure out how to use it in an innovative way, in a creative way, with that human-centered approach, with this focus on creating value for people, often in very unexpected ways, like the one that I just mentioned. Mm. It's such a, it's a nice bow you put on that. It's, it's, it's difficult, I think, for a lot of people to have that perspective in the face of really aggressive changes in technology because the human instinct is to become defensive or to, to not want to embrace that. Like you said, use it like an amplifier. Uh, so it's, it's a, I think, something we're going to have to overcome at a greater velocity as we move forward into the future. Well, you know, I had this experience firsthand in the past year. The design community at first or the art community had a big pushback on AI, uh, claiming things like intellectual property. You know, you have AI stealing ideas from artists and designers that put their ideas online. The truth is that instead of pushing back, we should learn how to embrace it. And as artists and designers, really take what AI gives you to different kinds of dimensions. It can give you, give you so many advantages. Uh, and yes, you know, the conversation on IP and intellectual property uh, is very important. It's really, really important. But we need to put it in context and eventually embrace the conversation not in a, um, by pushing back or in an aggressive way, but actually the opposite, trying to be fair, making sure that AI is trained in the proper way, but at the end of the day, aren't we trained in the same way as artists, designers, marketers, uh, 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 writers? I mean, we study work of others. We're inspired by the work of others all the time. And then we generate our own original work inspired by that. So yes, we need the right filters for AI. We need to make sure that it's all done in the right way, the machine is trained in the right way, but that will really shift the conversation from that to, wow, what an amazing opportunity we have as artists, as designers to leverage AI in incredible way. Now, again, is a design example because I'm a designer, but this is true for any other profession. Mm. So true. Mauro, if you could have our listeners take one thing away from all that you've shared with us today, what do you think that would be? My invite to all of you is to become or to be, maybe you are already, I hope you are already, people in love with people. It's the subtitle of my book, The Human Side of Innovation, People, The Power of People in Love with People. Uh, I wanted that to be the title, but, but then talking with my publisher, we realized that it would have been misleading, you know, people would have... <laughs> A, a, a romantic book. But <laughs> what is the meaning of people in love with people? There are three dimensions. Of, first of all, the, the, peop, the first people is us, professionals of the world, people of the world that create something for other people. So the second people are the people that receive our creativity, our innovation, our products, brands, services, whatever we create. The love component is what links the two. And there are three dimensions of this love. The first one is really the love for the people you serve, putting them at the center of everything, caring for them, doing the right thing for them, thinking that everything else, including business results, will come if you have that approach. The second dimension of love is love for what you do, having passion for everything you do, loving what you do. If you wake up in the morning and you realize that you're not loving anymore what you're doing, try to change your job, your job description, what you're doing. If you can't, within your context, your company, change company. Sometimes, you know, you will find yourself in front of uh, barriers that are really difficult to overcome, but try, try a few times. And often things will get better, uh, but you need to have that kind of courage. But the priority is love what you do. By the way, this is something uh, that is a big driver of both personal happiness and satisfaction and a big driver of the value you can create even for the companies you work in and for. And then the third dimension of love is the love for the people surrounding you. Uh, we don't live in, in the society of the one man or one woman show anymore. 
to do something relevant in this world, you need to work with others because there is this hyper-specialization. You need the best designers, the best uh, engineers, the best marketers, the best finance people. You need the best in all dimensions because you need to win with your products, solutions, and brands in all dimensions. And so connecting with all these people, bringing them with you, having empathy, care, and love for them is fundamental. By the way, these are three dimensions that are once again, not just about building value for yourself or your company, but are really fundamental dimensions to drive happiness in your life. If you find a way to love the people you serve, yourself and your job and the people surrounding you, you will find out that that's the best way to be happy. So well said. Thanks for sharing that. If if the listeners want to check you out, if they want to get your book or learn more about what you're up to, where can they find you? Well, there is the site, mauroporcini.com, but mostly I'm really, really active in Instagram, Mauro Porcini, and in LinkedIn, again, with my name. Uh, and the book, the book, an easy way is Amazon, but it's available in every uh, bookstore online or in the major bookstores in the US and abroad. Well done. Mauro, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. It's been really, really a pleasure. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to The One Thing Podcast. If you're a bold risk taker who wants to dream big and achieve a higher level of success in your life or business, visit theonething.com. There you'll find information on -on one-on-one coaching, our exclusive community membership program, and customized workshops that will help you get your team or organization aligned and rowing in the same direction. That's T-H-E, the number one, dot com to start living the life you've always dreamed of today. Be sure to follow the show to stay up to date on weekly episodes, guest interviews, and more. Plus, we would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note by going to speakpipe.com slash the one thing or email us at podcast at the one thing.com. We'll see you next week.